Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Exodus uh, chapter 20. We're looking at the second commandment this morning, reading from verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. This ends the reading of God's word. As we look this morning at the second commandment, we'll be reading from the Heidelberg Catechism on a couple of questions, three questions about God's will for us in this commandment and how we should use it. Um, the big picture here is not that God cares about all of the ways that we worship, not only who we worship from the first commandment, but how we worship him in the second commandment. We cannot make up our own version of God in our imagination, excuse me, much less carve out an actual idol and bow down to it. Our worship needs to be directed completely by his word. So there are many things here. If we think about if our, the image of God in our head if we think he will overlook sin just because he is loving, or if we think he's a cranky killjoy who is all justice, we need to adjust how we think about God. He will not overlook our sin because he is holy. But the blessing of God is that he has dealt with our sin by sending Jesus to the cross and uniting us with him. So as we consider the second commandment, let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. By your spirit and by your word, we will be challenged, we will be changed, and we will grow up to love you more and to serve you better. Be with us now as we engage in your word with your spirit so we can grow up in you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So uh, I'm going to come out of Mark chapter 6, and we're going to start... Um, we're going to start where Jesus sends his disciples out on the short-term mission trip. Okay, now up to this point, we have seen Christ address the Pharisees. We have seen Christ teach on faith. We have seen Christ um, cast out demons and heal and teach on specifically his kingdom. And his main message so far through the book of Mark has been repent. Because the kingdom is at hand. That is his main message. And as we'll see here, it also becomes the message that the apostles preach as they go out. So that brings up to this text. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And we'll read up to verse 13 here. And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and give them authority over unclean spirits. And he charged them, 
to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart. And if in any place you will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed. Right? So here, the Lord sends out his disciples. And he does so with some stipulations, which may be interesting to consider for our own ministries, especially because we are likewise called to continue the work of the kingdom. And this is in the beginning of the fulfillment of chapter 3. If you go back to chapter 3, you see that Christ tells his disciples that I have appointed the twelve whom he named apostles so that they may be with him and might send him out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So now for at least three chapters here, Jesus is preparing his disciples for this ministry of the preaching of the kingdom and the casting out of demons. So we see here we called the apostles for this reason. First, to be with him. It says to be with him, right? To learn from him, to grow in him, to love him. So when they are sent out, they can do a good job. And then to be sent out. And here in chapter 6 is the fulfillment of what we saw in chapter 3. Here is the sending. Here is the first time they are sent out in the book of Mark. The first thing to know is that Jesus sends them out two by two, right? In pairs. That's interesting because it seems to have both a biblical and a practical element. At the practical level, it's so you have someone else with them, right? For encouragement, for accountability, for prayer, and for protection, right? We cannot do ministry on our own. It just doesn't make sense. At a biblical level, it's because the Jewish culture and law, as well as the legal jurisprudence of the day, any testimony requires at least two witnesses, right? Deuteronomy 19 says this, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that has been committed. Only in the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established, right? And this is the law used by Christ when talking about church discipline in Matthew 18. And Paul also uses this in Timothy to talk about bringing a charge against elders. You need at least two witnesses to bring a charge against your elder. So again, in the Old Testament, we see that it's continuing into the New Testament age. So it is, it is in the mind of the Jews to not simply have blind faith in something. You need to have at least a couple of witnesses it's required by law to have two witnesses. So the Lord sends the apostles out in order to testify about him so there can be a sharing of adequate testimony of their message that the king is with them. We see here he gives them the authority also to cast out demons. We see that this is not done by their own power. It's not done by their own authority, right? Christ has to give them that authority. We see here a deeper 
almost metaphysical truth. All authority is delegated authority. No one has authority in and of themselves by the nature of their being. Husbands have authority because God has granted it to them. Parents have authority as they reflect the love of God to their children. The civil magistrates, per Romans 13, are called servants of God. Their authority is delegated from God to carry out his will. And here, the spiritual authority of the disciples given by Christ to continue the work that he was doing. This is a delegated authority. We see that they preach, heal, and cast out demons just as Christ has been doing. And here in Mark 3, which this passage references, they are called apostles. Right? Well, why do I bring that up here? Well, this is the form of the Greek word apostole, which means one that is sent out a messenger, an envoy, a representative, right? So even the name apostle has this idea of delegation. All authority is God's authority delegated to you. We do not live in a quote-unquote might-makes-right world, but we live in a world where we are called to glorify God in all of our stations and all of our offices in life. The modern view, uh, the Marxist view, is all about gaining power. It's about getting it for yourself. So you can make creation the way you want. Right? But any power that we actually have is a delegated power from God. It is a gift and a calling. As such, it is to be a benefit for us, yes, but also a benefit to others. It is to be a benefit to those that we are serving. So we should use it. We should use it obediently and to serve and to love those under our care and to do so under the gracious commands of God. This also means we live in a world of hierarchy, a world with God on top and all other authorities below. We live in a world of hierarchy, right? We should then love the idea of hierarchy. When hierarchy goes wrong, you get tyranny. But when it goes right... When it operates according to God's plan, hierarchy is beautiful and glorious and benefits everyone. That is something we need to see. The next part of this commissioning is interesting. Look at verse 8. Take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. Besides the practicality maybe of packing light uh, as they go out to complete, they need to go out with complete reliance on God. Your ministry is completely reliant upon God. Do not bring bread. Do not bring bags of belongings or money. Only take a staff, sandals, and a tunic, a tunic, only that which is needed for safe travels. This is because Christ wanted to teach them about the success of their ministry is not because of their material wealth. It's not because of their own strength, but rather it is because of their reliance on God. What God provides for them, including their daily needs, such as food, clothing, and housing. That is still reliant upon God. After we see... This, 
we see their lodging provisions. It says, Christ says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart. This is again reliance on God's provision. They are not to pay to stay at an inn. And God will provide housing that they need overnight. And once the Lord provides this, they are to be thankful, regardless of the accommodations. If it's an upscale hotel, great. If it's, a, if, it's a, if it's a small hut, great. Be thankful and stay there. They are not to move from house to house in the city, trying to upgrade their situation when in each city. They are not to be beggars. They're not to be out there trying to increase their own position. But they are out there to serve God and be thankful for his provision. They are not doing this for their own profit or their own increase. This way, they can focus on the mission. Right? Instead of constantly looking to worldly provision, once God provides, be grateful and get to work. From the other side, this also goes to show the importance of hospitality. You ever consider the flip side of this, right? Christian hospitality is an important key to our lives. So I have to ask, do you open your homes for the sake of the gospel? Do you provide a place for the servants of God to operate? Hospitality was a key virtue in those days, especially while the church was small and poor, which is why it's one of the requirements for eldership in 1 Timothy. Hospitality is important. And so when the apostles go into this town, they are relying on hospitality to do ministry there. But I want to argue that that virtue is still today. Here are a few verses on hospitality in the New Testament. Romans 12.13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13.2 says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to a stranger, for some thereby has entertained angels unawares. So here Jesus tells the disciples as they go out that their ministry relies on the hospitality of others. I do not think that is any different than today. The ministry of God still relies on the hospitality and graciousness of his people. And we'll see here in the next passage that by being hospitable, you're not only blessing the ministers who have come or receiving a blessing for yourself, but you're also blessing your neighbors, right? By hosting a minister, they can then stay in that town. They can then do work for your neighbors. They can then help you minister to those around you, right? One direct application of this is that by showing hospitality, you are blessing not only yourself, but everyone around you. Now today, uh, one way that we can show hospitality is by tithing. That is one way to give to the ministry, to graciously give to the ministry. And we need to be paying for your local ministers to work in your neighborhood. So that is one application of hospitality shown here. So here is a scriptural challenge to you. Grow in hospitality. If you don't practice hospitality, if you don't support your ministries that you want to see, then this work doesn't get done. Christ says, kick the dirt off your feet and go to the next town. If you don't want the gospel in your town, then don't show hospitality. But if you want it there, support it. Moving on to verse 11, it says, 
If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This is not talking about individuals. You don't kick the dirt off your feet at an individual's house. But it's talking about the town or the city. If that city doesn't receive you, doesn't receive the preacher, then that community receives a negative testimony, receives a curse. The dirt is kicked off their feet. But if they are received, just as we just saw, they are to stay there and minister and bless that area. So what about this dust removal practice? We see it as used in Acts 13.51 by Paul when facing, pressure, when facing pressure mounted by the Jews against him in Antioch. So we see the apostles continue to practice this even in the book of Acts. But then when we think back, what could this mean? We see that John the Baptist says he was unworthy to even untie Christ's sandals. Why is that? Because sandals are dirty. Imagine walking around old Roman roads where donkeys and camels and horses would walk around. The bottom of your feet were not exactly clean. right? So the bottom of the feet, even the Middle Eastern culture today, is considered filthy, considered dirty. So when you consider what it means to kick the dirt off your feet, you are saying, I'm leaving the filth here. Right? I'm leaving the curse here. Right? This is also why, Jesus, why Moses had to take off his sandals at the burning bush. He was entering into a holy place. So kicking the dirt off, off your feet is that you're leaving the uncleanliness there. To leave them as unwashed, to leave that place as unforgiven, unministered to. It was apparently a Jewish practice in the day whenever they left a pagan or Gentile area, they would do this. Now we see, moving on to verse 12, the outcomes of the disciples' actions. It says, They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They should cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They're doing the exact same work that Christ did. Right? They do the same thing that Jesus was doing preaching repentance, preaching the kingdom, casting out demons, anointing and healing. No doubt this message of repentance was the same message of repentance from Jesus starting in chapter 1. So just as Christ and the disciples preached this message, calling it the gospel. Right? This is before Christ was crucified, but it's still called the gospel. Right? That people can repent of their sins, and that God's kingdom is near. And so, where I agree the gospel proper is found in 1 Corinthians 15, and that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, the gospel is also Christ's coming and his kingdom coming. Right? That language is used here in the gospels. And they said they did this anointing to heal. Right? This was an ongoing practice in the church as well. James 5.14 says this, if anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And their prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up as if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So here we have the forgiveness of sins. We have healing. We have the anointing. The work that Christ did is the same work the apostles did even through the New Testament age. This should be 
a great encouragement to anyone who ministers in the gospel. Right? The apostles were sent out by Christ to do the work of the kingdom, and he gave them authority, but he also gave them a measure of success. They did, in fact, cast out demons. They did, in fact, heal people. They did, in fact, call people to repentance. And people did, in fact, return to the kingdom. So don't be discouraged in your own gospel calling. God will grant you the authority you need and a measure of success that he has for you. If you are faithful, he will not fail. He will build his kingdom and the gates of Hades will not prevail. Okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears here. I'm going to drop from first to fourth, but I'm going to tie it all back together at the end. So follow me here. The next portion of the text is actually the death of John the Baptist, starting in verse 14 through 20. It says this, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name has become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work with him. But others said, oh, he's Elijah. Another said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, had been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she couldn't. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. So he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. But he still heard him gladly. So the fame of Jesus and the sending of his apostles catches the ear of King Herod, right? Through the book of Mark, we have seen this happen several times. That the preaching of Christ and the miracles he was doing catches the ear, and the people who follow him grow and grow and grow. So here we have the work of the apostles spreading the name of Christ. Now this causes speculation as to the identity of Christ. Some think that Jesus is just another prophet of old, like Elisha or Elijah or Isaiah or Ezekiel, which he is a prophet, but he's so much more. Christ is the greater prophet, greater than even Moses, as is foretold in Deuteronomy 18.18, where God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words on his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. Right? So even Moses prophesies of a greater prophet than he, and that prophet is Christ. So this is why the Jews are thinking, hey, is this Jesus guy, is he, is he that? Now, some say that maybe he's Elijah. He's the Elijah to come. This is another Old Testament uh, fulfillment. It's out of Malachi chapter 4. Interestingly, it's actually about John the Baptist, not about Christ, but we'll see why that matters in a minute. Malachi 4, 5 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Right? This prophecy is of a coming prophet who's going to have people repent, restore their relations, so God will not destroy them. Here, the Elijah is literally the Elijah to come back 
not the Elijah to come back from the dead, but a continuation of that Deuteronomy 18. So this is a prophecy of the coming prophet like Elijah that some people speculated Christ was the fulfillment of. But we see here in Luke 1.17 that this is actually a prophetic ministry of John the Baptist. But John, what did he do? He said, I must decrease and Christ must increase. So here we have a great prophet of John saying, there's even one greater than I, Christ. And so this is interesting. If you looked up that Malachi verse, you'll notice something. It is the very last verses of the Old Testament. And Malachi was the last prophet chronologically of the Old Testament. In the canonical order, but also the chronological, Malachi was the last prophet before the 400 years of silence. So these are the very last words of God for 400 years before the coming of John and Jesus. That God will send a prophet that will bring about repentance, that will deter God's wrath. This is awesome. This is awesome. God took his old covenant and his Old Testament and he signed it with the gospel. I will forgive their sins and I will not bring judgment to them. That is how God finished and closed the Old Testament. Now others, moving on, think that Jesus is John the Baptist revived. And this might track as John's fame decreased, Christ increased. And we saw that John's arrest back in Mark chapter 1 was almost immediately after Jesus' baptism. Right, Mark 1.14. So John was likely imprisoned now under Herod for between one and two years. This led some people to think that the Lord was John returned, even though Herod thought this possibly from a guilty conscience. You just killed this great prophet, and now you hear of this Jesus guy. And more, almost immediately afterwards, you're like, okay, there's something going on here. That's probably how Herod was thinking. But Herod's sin blinded him from having the greater understanding. So Herod had John arrested and killed, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it'll be a good thing to note a few things historically here. First, we have an independent account from Josephus of the fact that Herod had John killed. Okay? Secondly, is that this Herod was never actually a king. He was a tetrarch. His father, Herod the Great, died and bestowed four corners of his kingdom to his four sons. So whenever you hear him called king, it's actually a dig because he never was king. But it also got under Herod's fingernails because Herod, this Herod, decided to try to throw a coup against his brothers and was then exiled in Spain and died there. So what's interesting is this Herodian dynasty is actually not a Jewish family. They were outside the Jewish nation. They were given reign over Israel, but they were not Israeli themselves. This makes it all more interesting that John the Baptist was willing to call Herod to repent over the breaking of God's law. Herod spoke to a non-Jew. He spoke to a civil and political leader. And he taught what is described in Leviticus 18.16. Do not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, for it is your brother's nakedness. So here, John the Baptist is keeping even political, civil, Gentile leaders under the law of God. So what else do we see here? We see the boldness 
of John the Baptist. Imagine that. He was willing to speak directly to the Tetrarch, speak directly about his sexual and marital sins. Would you walk up to Biden or Trump or Obama or, or Clinton and say, hey, you've sinned in this way? Right? So here we have the boldness of John the Baptist. Listen to Calvin on this point. Calvin says this, Hence we learn what unshaken fortitude the servant of God ought to be armed with when we have to do with princes. For in almost every court, hypocrisy and servile flattery are prevalent, and the ears of the princess, having been accustomed to the smooth language, do not tolerate any voices which reprove their vices in any severity. Right? So Calvin is saying here, politicians are so used to being kissed up to that if you come to them with their sin, they don't know how to handle it. Right? But Calvin goes on and says this, but as a prophet of God ought not to overlook a shocking crime, John steps forward, though disagreeable and an unwelcome advisor, Rather than fail in his duty, John the Baptist saw this as a duty, scruples not to incur the frown of the tyrant. He didn't care about Herod's opinion. Even though he knew Herod to be strongly held by the snares of that prostitute, that he could scarcely be moved from that purpose. John the Baptist, according to Calvin, probably thought this was a fool's errand. But because he knew he had to fulfill his ministry, as the apostles fulfilled their ministry, he had to preach to Herod. Even though John was in prison and he was set to be killed, he was not underneath anyone's authority except for God's. He freely followed Christ. He spoke freely and powerfully from God's word and God's law. He was not afraid and he was not controlled by any other. He didn't owe anyone anything. He was a free man, not under the thumb of anyone, not even Herod the Tetrarch. The only chains that bound John the Baptist were the the silver chains that Herod could bring up. Nothing else could stop him. So Mark decides to elaborate on this story, on on the martyrdom of John the Baptist, starting in verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed her, Whatever you want, even up to half my kingdom. And she went out and asked her mother, What should I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry. But because his oath and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent out an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. He went and he beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took, these are the disciples of John the Baptist, when his disciples came and heard of it, he took the body and laid it in a tomb. There is much to glean from this passage. When we look at Herod, 
This is a cautionary tale. First, all the church fathers that I read in preparation for this pointed to emphasize the foolishness of rash vows, right? Herod promised anything to this young lady after she danced for them at a birthday party. He was trying to show off. He didn't consider the consequences of this oath he was making. He did not tame his tongue. He pledged more than he was willing to deliver. And unknowingly or knowingly, he made the same promise that a real king, King Ahasuerus out of Esther in 5.3, gave to her up to half the kingdom. Right? Which really wasn't Herod's to begin with, because he was not even a king. In his arrogance, he made a very rash vow. Secondly, we see from Herod here, not to be lustful. Don't be controlled by these lusts. Herod had two forms of lust in this story. First, he took his brother's wife and desired her even though it was wrong. And secondly, he was seduced by the girls dancing. Third thing from Herod we see is don't try to be, don't try to impress people, especially by impressing them with unrighteousness. Herod was first having a party with his top officials. He's like, hey, I'm having a birthday party for myself. How about you come and celebrate me? That's who Herod is. He's trying to rub elbows with people in power and with those in influence. And everything he did was to impress them. The initial invite, allowing a young lady to dance, making the vow, and even fulfilling the vow was all to impress his audience. Simply put, Herod had a greater fear of man than he had a fear of God. His reputation, his pride, his opinion from others was more central to him than continuing to protect probably the only man in his life who would speak truth. His reputation was more important than the one person who would speak truth to him. We need to have a greater fear of God than concern of us what others think. So besides Herod's poor example, we also get a strong sense of the precursor of Christ's death, right? Like Christ, John was, a, John was arrested unjustly. They were both able to speak to those in authority, yet found no pardon. Both Herod and Pilate acted out of fear of man. After the murder was done, their disciples took the body from the tomb. And these parallels come after a discussion as to how some thought Jesus was the rerun of John. Right? So there's this, in the text, there's this relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. So the commentators that I saw on this said that there is an intentional parallel in this text between John and Jesus to prepare the minds of his audience for the death of Christ. But also, since the audience of Mark are people who are persecuted, is to prepare them to have the same fate as John the Baptist, persecuted and killed. So, as I start landing this plane, <clears throat> we are to consider looking at different ministries here. First, we have the ministry of those being hospitable to the disciples. They welcomed the ministers, gave them food and shelter in order their town may receive the word of God. We, likewise, need to have a heart for this. The apostles were sent out. They were given authority. They were given guidelines for the ministry. Don't be in it for selfish gain. Trust 
in God's providence for all of it. Speak the truth of the kingdom and of repentance. Do so in fellowship with others. Recognize that you are going in ministry under the delegated authority of Jesus Christ. And remember, the disciples saw a measure of success when they worked by faith. We also see John's ministry. He spoke freely. He was not cowed by any man, even a king. And he knew, he believed, and he preached God's word to everyone. And he saw success. He had, for the time, the ear of the king and the fear of Herodias. And he was martyred for it. But if you know anything about martyrdom in the Bible, God chalks it up as a win. So we see here a third example, a less uh, savory one. Herod. Though he was a tetrarch, he was a slave. He was a slave to his impulses. He was a slave to his lusts. He was a slave to his reputation. And because of that, he ended up being forced to act out in such a way that he didn't want to by beheading a prophet. How about you? Are you a slave to your lusts? Porn is abundant and easy today to come by today. In fact, it comes to you. And not even outright lust, but even looking at people as they walk by or watching commercials or shows that are unsavory or dwelling too long on social media posts. You do not even want to search it out. It comes looking for you. How about what you read and listen to? Do you have control of your thought life? Do you have people praying for your purity? Do you have accountability? Are you willing to change your habits? to not fall into the same trap that Herod fell into? Are you a slave to your impulses? Do you speak before you think? Do you go into unwise debt to gratify your desires? Do you make rash statements and vows? Or do you practice self-control? First, you practice self-control in the small things. So when the temptations get greater, you are practiced for the bigger things. How about this? Can you bridle your tongue? Can you manage your appetites? Can you control your temper, even in a traffic jam? How about being a slave to what people think of you? Are you more afraid of men, or are you afraid of God? Are you afraid to speak up for righteousness' sake in public, because you don't want to be ostracized, fired, teased, or dismissed? John the Baptist was not afraid. Do you compromise your Christian values for the sake of your reputation? Are you satisfied with the friendship God provides and the fellowship of your spiritual family? Do you do ministry and community? Do you trust that God will meet your needs and that you do not need to fear man? These are some of the ways that Satan ensnares you. These are some of the ways in which Satan prevents your ministry. With these chains over you, he can get you to work even against the kingdom. And to do things you never thought would be possible, like murdering a prophet. The Jews, when they crucified Christ, thought they were doing a good thing. You will serve someone. Something will control you. The question is, are you a servant of King Jesus? Or are you a slave to sin? Your ministry will be greatly hindered if you have the chains that Herod was bound by. The comparison today is between those to do hospitality, the apostles and John the Baptist and their faithfulness and that sins didn't ensnare them, and Herod, who couldn't fulfill his ministry as the Tetrarch,
because his sins ensnared him. Where are you on this? And because we're all sinners, I want to tell you there is, in fact, a gracious way out if you are on sin's leash. It is the message of Christ. It is the message of the apostles that he sent out. It is the message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Repent from your lusts, both large and small. Control your impulses and your tongue. Fear God and do not fear man. Turn from your sins. Look to Christ for forgiveness and enter into his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, you are a great God. You are a gracious God. And you have prepared work for all of us to do. I pray that you purify us and cleanse us. Remove these chains of sin so we may serve you and see that success that you have for us in these ministries. May we be more like the apostles. May we be more like John the Baptist. May we show hospitality in order to be a benefit to other ministries. Free us from the chains that Herod had, and free us so we can serve you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 13, or excuse me, verse 8 through 13. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not good enough for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another come, And he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we recognize that this table is expandable. It grows larger to fit all of Christ's body. The Roman centurion had faith not seen in Israel. He didn't expect a place at the Lord's table, but God gave it to him anyway. Tables that we're used to fit a certain number of people around them, but this table that we come to this morning fits all those who put their trust in the Lord with their children. Many feel like outsiders. Perhaps you don't feel like you're worthy to be at the Lord's table. That is part of the point. You aren't worthy. You should feel humbled and convicted, but you should also feel the assurance of your forgiveness here. The cup of shame that you deserved has been taken away. You don't have to drink it. Jesus drank it for you, and we have a cup of joy instead. We welcome to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God, and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. We invite you to come with your children and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.